0: Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything, featuring people who have led meaningful and interesting lives for others. I'm lucky to be joined today by Gareth Evans, an extraordinary Australian politician, international policymaker, academic and barrister. Gareth served in the Australian Parliament from 1978 to 1999, most notably as Foreign Minister in the Hawke-Keating Government from 1988 to 1996, between 2000 and 2009 Gareth led the Brussels-based International Crisis Group, making significant contributions to international policymaking, particularly as an architect and advocate for the responsibility to protect. More recently, Gareth served as Chancellor of the Australian National University from 2010 until his retirement in early 2020. In this conversation, Gareth and I speak about his early life and influences, his experiences as Cabinet Minister in the Hawke-Keating Government, mass atrocity crimes and the responsibility to protect, his work at the International Crisis Group, and his time as Chancellor of the Australian National University. We also reflect on the meaning of Australia and a life well lived. Thank you so much for your time today, Gareth. It's an honor to be speaking with you.
1: My pleasure, Nick. Happy to join you.
0: To kick things off, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how you found the lockdown experience in Melbourne and how, and whether you've picked up any new skills or hobbies in isolation.
1: Well, I'm deeply conscious that the lockdown experience has been pretty traumatic for one hell of a lot of other members of the community, uh, financially, physically, psychologically. By comparison, I've had a pretty easy time, I have to say. And I think one of the great advantages of the lockdown is it's given me a kind of psychological permission to move into the kind of retirement mode. Mm-hmm. But I really did need to gracefully slide into it. when you've been around as long as I have with um, you know, multiple decades of doing different things. I mean, 10 years as a, an academic and a lawyer, civil libertarian activist, 20 years in politics and government, 10 years running an international NGO and another 10 years back in academia, uh, ANU writing involved in university governance, I think it really is time for a rest, time to move over, let the next generation get on with things, but it's obviously difficult to make that transition, but being locked up in virus exile um, made it <laughs> that rather easier. In terms of new skills that I might have learnt, um, I think the uh, most obvious one is the c- capacity at last, after more than a half a century of hoarding paper, to actually cull, because I'm very much in the <laughs> business of trying to... Uh, sort and cull and archive all my papers and photos and god knows what else that's accumulated mm. on the principle that even when i cark it which hopefully won't be too imminent i don't want the tip truck just to come in and my family to be faced with a council of despair as to what to do with this massive material so
0: mm-hmm.
1: i can't, can't pretend any uh, anything in the way of crocheting or uh, needlework or pie making but um culling i'm pretty good at <laughs>
0: That's wonderful to hear. There might be a Gareth Evans archive in the works as well. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak a bit about your early life and influences uh, and what drew you to politics?
1: Well, I came from very much a working-class background. My dad was a tram driver, and strong trade unionist, but not directly engaged in politics. But my instincts, I guess, with that background were from the beginning and have remained on the left. Uh, I think it was Gough Whitlam that really... I was very active in student politics, but not in party politics. It was Gough Whitlam that really energised my generation to think of the possibility of parliamentary politics, really, for the first time as a way of making the country and the world a better place. And that really captured my imagination. A lot of other formative experiences, particularly travelling experiences, uh, influenced the kind of direction my political activity has taken passion and a preoccupation with racism and criminal justice and obviously a whole range of international relations issues but politics as such I mean the attraction for me was really always that you you could actually do things on a macro scale being a lawyer you could do very good things if community you can do very good things but they're essentially micro in politics if you get into government at least you do have a to, to do things, to change things on a really significant scale. And that was, uh, that was an important motivation. But beyond that, um, God knows what the psychology is that um, gets you into this often very unhappy, misery-generating business. But um, the rewards are great when things fall into place and you really feel that you can and do achieve something in government.
0: Mm, fantastic. So on that note, in 2014, you wrote, Inside the Hawke-Keating Government, a Cabinet Diary based on your experience in a range of senior roles in the Hawke-Keating government, from Attorney-General, Minister for Resources and Energy, and most notably as Foreign Minister from 1988 to 1996. So looking back, what are some of the achievements you're most proud of, and what policy changes have been the most enduring over the past three decades?
1: Well, there's a whole bunch of things, I guess. Um bit by bit, portfolio by portfolio. Um, As Attorney General, a lot went wrong, but we did get right. Um, Freedom of information legislation, family law legislation, and uh, we won the dams case, of course, to stop uh, that massive, ugly hydro development in Tasmania. Uh, As Resource and Energy Minister, I think we managed to save. I was in the middle of saving the Northwest Shelf project, which was a danger of uh, complete collapse. I was involved a little later on in working with Prime Minister Hawke in, uh, in saving the Antarctic from mining and oil exploration of any kind creating mm. created a wilderness park there. Um, as transport and communications, I was... Party to quite an important enterprise in changing the way in which state owned enterprises in telecommunications and transport, and shipping, aviation all, all worked to make them more effective players in a contemporary economic environment. But I suppose my most specific achievement that I'm most remembered for by at least some people I was the first minister in the world to ban smoking on aircraft mm-hmm. and made me very, very popular with uh, hostesses. And, uh, cabin crews uh, thereafter <laughs> uh, as foreign minister i guess uh, my primary um, focus in my last years in politics you know, there's, a, there's a lot of things that i, I think of with some pride I'm in the cambodia peace process which we initiated and brought to successful fruition at least so far as peace was concerned we didn't do so well in human rights i'm afraid and democracy But uh, bringing to conclusion the Chemical Weapons uh, Convention, initiating some major international rethinking on the possibility of nuclear disarmament and a whole variety of other sort of contributions to thinking about effective multilateral processes in the UN and and regionally uh, creating the APEC. Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum and other forms of regional security architecture. That was a very busy time, and one that I'm, you know, pretty proud of in retrospect. Even though obviously we didn't get everything right. Um, in Parliament, I guess my the thing that I remember most most fondly of all the things I was able to do was um, leading the Senate in the debate on the Mabo legislation, betting down. Uh, that fundamental change in the understanding of a native title and the reality that australia the high court did the uh, did the original conceptual legal job in declaring that the country was no longer terra nullius but actually owned and occupied by our indigenous forebears but it depended on us in the parliament to pass the legislation to turn all that into a practical reality and um, it was the longest debate in the history of the Senate up until then. And I was on the feet, I think, for over 50 hours in the committee stage, defending it against the uh, the Neanderthals and the trogs and the other side of politics. And uh, that was a pretty memorable achievement when we got that one that one through. So there's a whole variety of things I do look back um, on, along with other things I prefer to forget, but lots of things I do look back on with a, with a certain sense of achievement, which I think justified that original aspiration or motivation for going into politics
0: yeah and I think uh, it was Paul Keating who spoke about policy and politics of being able to sort of build things into the bedrock of the nation Um, but speaking of those uh, sort of great historical figures that you you worked with and lived with for so long uh, could you reflect on some of the differences between Hawke and Keating as leaders of the Australian Labour Party and their differences as Prime Ministers and maybe as men as well
1: Well, they did have very different personalities, but they're actually very complementary personalities. And when they were working together and not getting into old bull versus young bull mode, um, as of course happened, and eventually a a divorce, um, when they were working together, it was a very, very successful combination. I mean, they both had extraordinary strengths. Ork's strengths were self-evidently his capacity to connect with people of all shapes and sizes and social ranks status, um, his capacity to craft a really effective narrative about uh, you know, what the direction the government and the country needed to go in, um, his capacity for collegiality in the way in which he brought people in to work together very effectively in government uh, without you know too much ego notwithstanding that personally he was a bit of a narcissist as we can all remember but it was a very collegiate uh, cooperative collective operation and hawke was central to that and also i think the other thing about hawke which was extraordinary particularly given his wild carousing boyo days in the trade union movement was the, the, the the discipline the personal discipline the institutional discipline that he brought to the role keating was a very different character i mean his main strengths obviously were his um, ability to to set a strategic direction and to stick to it, and above all, his unrivalled capacity to communicate. I mean, Keating's the best communicator I've ever seen. I mean, not just in his public performance, but um, in his capacity to persuade, working the, the corridors, of the, the media, uh, just persuading, 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 and that you know wonderful gift he had um, of of language uh, and invective, um, very tough, yes, very cruel, yes, but always with the uh, the rapier rather than the bludgeon uh, <laughs> at the heart of it. And, uh, you know, very impressive performer. I mean, some of his language we all remember, you know, peacock and souffle can't rise twice. and
0: Doing you slowly. And you're like going
1: that. to do you slowly. I mean, I mean my favourite Keating remark was one that I don't think ever got into the public principle. Mercifully, and that's when he when he described. I think it was John Howard as um, having all the charm of a used suppository. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I mean, Keating Keating actually um, is a very attractive character personally. One of the odd things about public figures is that um, sometimes people who seem most distant and arrogant to the public at large, uh, you know, the warmest and most genuine and unaffected um, in personal relationships and the converse and whereas Hawkey was, um, you know, super bloke, super mate to the public. I mean, I, and even though I was quite close to Hawke for a very long time, I always found Keating a, a sort of warmer personality uh, yeah, as right. an individual than Hawke was, and that's something that um, it was just not understood, I think, by the wider public. But look, both of them were towering figures in Australian politics, and I think we all look back, not just people like me who were part of it, not just rusted on Labour supporters, but I think um, commentators generally, analysts generally look back on the hawk leading governments as a, a golden age in Australian politics. And I think that's not a bad description. And it owes everything to the quality of leadership of those two.
0: Mm, absolutely. So it's commonplace, especially in 2020, for people to be speaking about a prevailing feeling of disorder and fragmentation in the world. And with the rise of populism, the return of the nation state and great powers, the tensions and uncertainties in long, long-standing Western alliances... Um, and the breakdown in multilateral cooperation on a range of global issues. So, as someone who was instrumental, as you mentioned, in the development of regional multilateral bodies like ASEAN and APEC, and having been deeply involved with the United Nations and similar organisations, do you have a sense that much of that liberal and democratic promise of the early 1990s, and that sort of that halcyon way in which we look back on those days, is unraveling before our very eyes?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of crude nativism, nationalism, reasserted protectionism, and sort of authoritarian populism. That's not a contradiction in terms going on at the moment. And obviously, the uh, the predominance of uh, the role of Trump and the menagerie of uglies around the world with which he's associated, the Bolsonaro's and Erdogan's and Orbán's and Duterte's and so on,
0: mm.
1: all uh, are very bad signals of the way in which the world might go. But my own instinct is a little bit more optimistic, as so often, um, about these things. I mean, I think it's quite possible, if not probable, it's certainly possible that the COVID pandemic crisis will be a wake-up call as to the absolute necessity for cooperation uh, globally among all the major powers and countries generally if these big problems are going to be solved um Mm. not just the big existential problems that threaten life on this planet as we know it the pandemics possibility of nuclear war and of course climate change but a whole bunch of other transnational problems problems which um, kofi annan used to call problems without passports because they were not capable of resolution by any country acting alone however big and powerful piracy terrorism uh, trafficking, other forms of arms control other than just nuclear, all of these things do require, um, obviously, cooperation if they're going to be solved. And the populists haven't been doing all that well in terms of their effectiveness, the effectiveness of their response uh, to the virus. It's been... Yeah. That's been, you know, chaotic and undisciplined and self-indulgent and um, they may well pay the price for that. So maybe that's too optimistic a reading to think that um, multilateralism is in for a new dawn. Everything will depend, I think, an awful lot will depend certainly on the outcome of the November presidential election. If Trump by some miracle now, given how far behind he is in the polls if he does get re-elected i think that's uh, that's a horrible sign for the future of global cooperation and global decency if he is defeated then i think we're in with a chance of re-establishing that spirit of multilateral cooperation which is so critical if we are to ever make the world a, a safer and saner and more civilized and decent place
0: yeah and speaking about that safer and saner uh, world you've been concerned with international humanitarian law and the responsibility to protect throughout your professional life. So uh, I wonder, uh, as Foreign Minister, what it was like at a human level to be you know, in a position of power and having to make major foreign policy decisions uh, about Australia's response to mass atrocity events as they unfolded um, in major hotspots during your time um, in Somalia, Rwanda, uh, and in nearby in East Timor as well.
1: We talked about being in a position of power. I mean, actually, the, the strongest sentiment I had was one of awful impotence in the face of those atrocity crimes that you refer to, uh, particularly in, when perpetrated in places like Rwanda and so on. Uh, we just had no capacity to act in any way individually. All we could aim at doing was to prod and poke um, the other key players and to you know, sort of prod their consciences to, to act more effectively when something did erupt of that kind in our own immediate neighborhood um, with cambodia of course we led the charge Um, subsequently not at the time i wasn't around in 75 when all the ugliness um, first broke out but by the time I was in office, uh, there was a, you know, a sense that we could and should do something to redress that situation. When it happens on your own immediate watch, as it did with Dilly in '91, I mean it really, really is is traumatic, and um, because. You know, it's not just a matter of a, a small country that Australia could sort of boss around. This was Indonesia was responsible, a country of 200 plus million people and um, you know, not a country that we could afford to go to war with over something like that. And a country that was um, very, very defensive about its behavior. Not so much Quorum in Alitas, with whom I had a very close personal relationship and had worked so closely and effectively with on Cambodia, I broke the news to him, actually. We were in Tokyo together of the Dili Massacre. I was, I was the first to hear about it. His face went absolutely white, white as a sheet. Not because of uh, the implications for his diplomatic role, but just personally, he was horrified yeah. by what happened. And um, I knew it was was a military then that was out of control. It was out of his control in foreign affairs. Um, and it was just a very, very difficult situation. We could use all the diplomacy in the world uh, to try and, but I didn't have to use any diplomacy. I mean, he knew that a, a terrible wrong had been perpetrated wanted mm. desperately to do something about it. But with the authority of the military then had with the Sahato government, it was very hard, even from the inside, uh, to yeah. do
0: something. But so I mean, it's
1: very, I- very, very, very frustrating, these things. And all you can really aim to do, which is what I was subsequently, I guess, up to a point able to do, is try to use uh, such credibility as Australia had, as I had, to, um, to work internationally to create a new way of thinking about how to deal with these genocide and other atrocity crimes. And um, I did work very actively, um, as you're probably aware, as a chair of a big international commission, which uh, established this principle of the responsibility to protect, yeah. uh, which won recognition um, at the UN and. 2005 with the unanimous endorsement of the world's heads of government heads of state that what happened behind state borders when these atrocity crimes occurred was not nobody else's business but the world's business and there was a responsibility to protect populations so so treated yeah uh, responsibility and a responsibility to act after the event. So what we had to do was, was get a normative change, a cultural change and a political change so that the countries with the real authority to do something about this, not just the smaller powers, the middle powers, uh, would be energised. So it was not easy responding to those sort of situations, but um, you know, these things are, are never easy.
0: Mm. And so, as you've mentioned, there seems to be a bit of a moral bridge between your time as foreign minister and witnessing things like... Uh uh, the rwandan genocide the dili massacre in 91 and then also moving into your role as you just mentioned as a ceo and president of the international crisis group in brussels from 2000 to 2009 um, the, that's a uh, global ngo blending field-based research policy analysis and high-level advocacy to prevent war uh, mass atrocity events um genocides and ultimately to promote peace so could you sort of reflect on um the differences in working for a global ngo rather than a government Um, a national government in presenting and preventing and resolving those deadly conflicts?
1: Well, the big difference is that when you're in a senior position in government, you're inside the room when decisions are being taken. I mean, not every decision, because Australia is not a player in the same class, the same clout as the five members of the UN Security Council and so on. But nonetheless, in many, many, many contexts, you are actively engaged in the decision-making process. Whereas an NGO, all you can possibly hope to do is to influence that process. All you can ever be really is like the urchin outside the tart shop, you know, is pressed <laughs> the window, you know, wanting to wanting to get in and hopefully influencing the player. International Crisis Group is an unusual organization in that we are in, inside the room rather more often than almost any other security NGO, security-focused NGO in the world. Uh, Because I was a former foreign minister and very well known to an awful lot of the current players, I was able to get in uh, to discuss with presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers, defence ministers, very senior officials, a whole bunch of things which were beyond the capacity, the advocacy capacity of other organisations. We had a very, very powerful, strong and um, highly recognised board of directors, a very strong team of linguists and other people on the ground, and we were coming up with them with very good ideas but at the end of the day at the end of the day um it's not the same as being in government and um you know even though my experience at international crisis group was one well, of the most satisfying and challenging my life and we did quite a few good things um it's never, never as good as, as the buzz and never as good as the actual capacity to achieve things mm. when you are there and hammering things out across the table and making decisions that actually stick, not just making recommendations.
0: Yeah. And so what would be some of the more memorable experiences from your time at the International Crisis Group, you know, including crises and issues you were involved with, but also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the 2005 um, UN General Assembly uh commitment to uh, the responsibility to protect, which was a sort of a a doctrine or a a, a new norm or, or I suppose, an international consensus where there wasn't one before that?
1: Well, two things. Let's begin with the International Crisis Group. Um, The sort of things we were involved in, which I remember most, were... The 2003 invasion of Iraq and the response to that. And it was a, a nightmarish business to persuade my board, which was quite heavily American and neocon influenced, to accept our analysis that the invasion was utterly without justification on any of the three grounds that had been articulated the weapons of mass destruction one, the uh, terrorism one, and even the human rights one, because even though Saddam Hussein was a serial human rights violator, so too were 60 or 70 other countries around the world at that time, and the leadership, And if that was to be a ticket for invading a country, um, then God help any kind of rules-based international order. And the role that we played in articulating that case, I think, was was pretty important. Certainly cost me a personal friendship with Tony Blair, among many other things, but uh, I remember that vividly. Secondly, we we did play a very important role uh, in articulating the case for the terms of what would have been a, a very good settlement to the Israel-Palestine um, ongoing horror story uh, at a time no longer, I'm afraid, with us when two-state solution looked really, really possible. It was a question of how you got the negotiations moving forward. And I think we came up with an end game first reverse engineering sort of approach with literally scores and scores of pages of deep analysis as to what a workable solution might look like. That was very influential on everybody except the players that counted most. I mean, the Israeli government and um, the U.S. government, which weren't inclined to push it. But that was a very important role. We played the other... Role I particularly think of uh, during that period was um, with the Iran nuclear issue, in which we were very much involved. I was um, playing a sort of a second track in by role, almost um, going backwards and forwards to Tehran and speaking with key players. The Europeans were uh, were sort of talking but not listening uh, to the Iranians, and the Americans were not even talking. So. Um, <laughs> What we were able to do was to craft a solution to the, the burgeoning standoff and the, the nuclear program issue, which actually was adopted uh, in almost word for word terms in the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action 10 years later, which if our particular proposal had been accepted at the time, it would have um, solved, uh, saved an awful lot of tears, I think, and certainly got where we did get to before Trump um, a lot quicker. So it was the International Crisis Group, and it was, was and remains, I think, a very important NGO, with that combination of very sharp field-based advocacy, very thoughtful policy recommendations, and high-level advocacy—not grassroots campaigning, but high-level direct advocacy. Mm. So it was was wearing that particular hat, I guess, that I got involved in the other exercise of the Responsibility to Protect, which you asked about. Yep. So very, very quickly. Um, the story with the responsibility to protect is that for, for centuries and certainly for decades, there'd been no consensus about any kind of wider international responsibility to respond to genocide and other mass atrocity crimes occurring behind state borders even after the second world war holocaust you did not have any kind of consensus as to what a reaction should look like even after the genocide convention no consensus in practice and that was certainly the case through the 90s and the balkans war serbranitsa rwanda horrors there so what we were able to do in the commission that the Canadians asked me to co-chair was come up with this concept of the responsibility to protect, which was completely alternative way of looking at the problem other than in the context of so-called humanitarian intervention, which up until then had been the solution, the military solution. You send in the Marines and, and the, the West and the global North was sort of disposed to adopt that in principle, but not very often to apply it in practice. Mm. The Global South thought it was a terrible idea because it was completely at odds with the notion of their sovereignty, independence, and so on. So what we did was come up with this principle of the responsibility to protect, which was articulated in a way that one unanimous endorsement in 2005, the UN General Assembly meeting as the, the World Summit on anniversary of the UN, and looking back, how much has been achieved by that recognition that there was a responsibility to protect, both preventively and reactively, including in an extreme situation with uh, by military means? I think there are the four benchmarks. If I can rattle them off quickly, I mean, it yeah, bench- doesn't
0: have to be quick at all. Yeah.
1: Well, okay. Well, benchmark yeah. number is is have you made a normative difference? Have you changed the way in which people think about this particular issue? I think the answer to that is yes. And the evidence forward in successive annual uh, General Assembly um, uh, debates on this issue when it's become clear that there is a genuine, genuine international consensus with only a very tiny number of holdouts, to the principles that there is a responsibility to protect and react in these situations. Uh, I think the second benchmark is have we acted as any, has the principle acted as a catalyst for any kind of institutional change? I think the answer there is yes, it's been very influential in the development of the International Criminal Court for all the problems that court continues to have. Um, It's been very influential in getting like-minded states, many of them, to cooperate in developing civil action programs, preventive and reactive, and it's been very influential in getting militaries to change their doctrine, their rules of engagement, their training, their way of thinking about mass atrocity response operations, which are not full-scale war fighting, but involve something necessarily in hard cases more than um, just traditional peacekeeping. Third benchmark is preventive. Have we been successful in preventing um, things exploding, which might otherwise have uh, been avoidable? Um, yes i think by and large we have and of course when you succeed a prevention nobody ever nothing happens therefore nobody notices and yeah. prevention everybody talks about is very hard to prove but um one of the best examples i can think of is burundi right next door to rwanda very very similar demographic makeup similarly on the edge of a genocidal volcano constantly uh, but so far for the last 15 years anyway that's been avoided because responsibility protect has been invoked and the security council has met uh, practically every time the situation has looked like going over the edge and there's been a flurry of diplomatic and other activity to stop it so in a quiet kind of way it has worked well but of course the fourth benchmark and the one that really matters where the rubber hits the road is reactive how effective has it been as a reactive mechanism when prevention has failed and atrocity crimes are occurring. And here, of course, although there've been some early successes, uh, the recent record has been one of manifest failure, above all in Syria, but also Sri Lanka, uh, Yemen, most recently the Rohingya people in Myanmar. And there has been a, um, a loss of any kind of consensus on these really hard cases where maybe military action is required. On the Security Council, and it's going to be very hard to recreate that consensus. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's linked with the earlier discussion we had about multilateralism and whether we're going to see a, um, an acceleration of that mood of defensive or aggressive nationalism and a rejection of global rules and norms and processes, or whether rather we're going to see a reversion back. And I haven't, I haven't given up on uh, on. R2P, as it's abbreviated, uh, once again becoming a very effective reactive vehicle, as well as effective in the other ways I've mentioned. Even China, even China, which hasn't been too flash in recent times in terms of its respect for civil liberties, certainly not domestically, and has been perpetrating some horror stories of its own with the Uyghur people in Xinjiang in particular. Even China has has you know paid more than lip service to the responsibility to protect, and it's not to be assumed that were there to be another really, really awful case like Rwanda or something, you know, explode in front of our eyes um, without other great power interests being in play, it's not impossible that China would be a, a serious supporter of that. So, again, I remain optimistic about the longer term. But right now, it's uh, it's tough going.
0: Sure. But speaking about those uh, reactive benchmarks you mentioned, <clears throat> could you sort of um, reflect on, you know, whether R2P, as it sort of um, came to a consensus towards the end of the 2010 decade, you know, also through your book, you published The Responsibility to Protect Ending Mass Atrocity Crimes Once and for All in 2008. Um, But is R2P, you know, future fit, I suppose, for the rapidly changing geopolitical landscape? Um, Because you mentioned Russia and China um, in particular but, you know, their vetoing of the um, Security Council's resolution to intervene in, in Syria in 2011, and that's where, you know, that, that nation fell through the cracks, certainly.
1: Well, the rot set in with the Security Council with Libya, actually, in 2011, where it was a champagne moment initially, where the Security Council approved a military response to what was universally anticipated, the massacre of Benghazi, when... When uh, Gaddafi's troops were moving across um, northern Libya and the massacre was thought likely to be imminent and he'd refused to take any notice of earlier Security Council resolution. Uh, That took place, uh, the international response, the massacre was averted. But what happened is the United States, UK and France, the the P3, Permanent 3, decided that uh, that wasn't good enough just to stop atrocities. They wanted to achieve full-scale regime change, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have a Security Council mandate for that. And they didn't go back to the Security Council to seek a mandate. They just used the mandate they had to move from civilian protection into full-scale war fighting. And that completely eroded the capacity for consensus when the Syria case came along just that same year, mid-2011, was when the first stages of Syria resembled almost eerily the first stages of Libya with unarmed demonstrators being shot down by, um, by uh, Assad's goons. And the, re- the failure of the Security Council then to respond not militarily, that was always a much more complex situation, but just through condemnation, just through uh, sanctions, through arms boycotts and embargoes, uh, it really made a difference, the fact that the Security Council was totally divided with Russia, China and a lot of the other southern countries, the BRICS countries, so-called, Brazil, India, South Africa, all saying, look, um, look what happened in Libya you give these characters an inch they take a mile right. so what we have to do is to recreate that sense of consensus on the security council that when genocide is occurring when mass atrocity crimes are occurring it's in nobody's interest uh, to let the forces of indecency and horror actually win that whatever else we disagree about however the tectonic plates might be clashing elsewhere around the world we ought at least to be able to agree on common united effective preventive or reactive action Uh, one way in which we can square the circle on this is by adopting a proposal which was put out by Brazil at the time in 2011 which was to which they called responsibility while protecting rather interesting notion but in short rwp if you'd like to add to the the acronym for mania around the place but rwp was responsible <laughs> for protecting it was the, the idea that um the idea that if you are going to give a military mandate as was given initially in libya then it ought to be a done on the basis of very clear agreed attention to a, a very clear set of agreed criteria as to what should justify military action And there should be some ongoing scrutiny, um, monitoring, review of the exercise of that mandate by the Security Council itself. So it's not just a matter of giving a mandate in an extreme situation and then somebody pocketing that mandate and running off and doing a different enterprise. So there is a sort of a solution there, but it does depend on a culture change. It does depend on a mood change. It does depend on a change of international atmosphere away from where we have been over the last few years, which has been the the triumph of inward looking nationalism, as you say. But I I, I do nurse the hope that particularly if there's a change of US government and um, I mean, you can't have much optimism about either Russia or China at the moment, but I haven't, and Russia, uh, one's entitled, I think, now with Mr. Putin uh, getting himself potentially there for life, God help us, but um, mm. with the Chinese, I, I still think we may be overlooking the possibility of getting a significant degree of Chinese cooperation on what I call these global public goods issues.
0: Yes, but, but, uh, but with... one does one does wonder, though, about, you know, whether they would indeed be cooperative, you know, given uh, a lot of the global commentary about what's happening in Xinjiang is referred to as, you know, cultural genocide or literal genocide in the sense of uh, forced sterilisation. So as the R2P, you know, normal consensus as it was at the end of, you know, Libya and Syria around then... Uh, well, obviously,
1: obviously, it's got a lot tougher as a result of what's been going on in Xinjiang, which is, by all accounts, indefensible and becoming more so. Uh, and look, we always have to recognise right from the outset that Responsibility Protect was never going to be fantastically effective for violations of these rules by the really big guys themselves internally because what are the sanctions you've got at the end of the day, apart from naming and shaming and diplomacy, you certainly don't have a military sanction against your country like China or the United States or Russia or, you know, just name them, the really big guy, because if you did try to exercise a military sanction, you I mean, would be plunging the, the whole scenario into a, into a full-scale war, which would create even far greater miserization than the problem that you're trying to solve. So there's an in there's an inbuilt sort of dilemma there and an inbuilt limitation. But when it comes to, you know, countries where, as I, I said in passing a moment ago, where great power interests are not immediately involved, where you're looking at um you know situations in a Rwanda or in East Timor or or wherever, um, Maybe, and maybe that's not perfect, but it may be that at least there can be a degree of consensus uh, that this sort of stuff is is intolerable and there needs to be effective redress mechanisms. Mm. I know that uh, sounds a little bit naive, but um, I think you've got to be a little bit naive and a little bit optimistic about the possibility of, of getting change in these things. Otherwise, nothing ever happens
0: yeah wonderful so to change tack a little bit or a lot rather uh you recently retired from your role as chancellor of the australian national university after a decade of service in that role um, which is now um, occupied by another f- former foreign minister in julie bishop um, but the australian national university anu has won extensive praise for its research and teaching its championing of equ- uh, equity and accessibility through a range of scholarship programs its leadership and governance uh, notably brian schmidt as well and also for its handling of the COVID-19 crisis. So could you reflect on your time as Chancellor, uh, the role of the ANU in Australian society, and some of the achievements or memories you're most proud of over the last decade?
1: Well, it's a great privilege to have had the role of uh, being Chancellor of the ANU. It's a great international university, and of course it's real value-add in the Australian scene is it's the only national university uh, that we have, certainly the only national public university. And it's a university that, right from the outset, was created with a with a national mission in mind—not just a research mission, and not just later on a, the uh, the education mission, uh, but a, a national development mission, a, a contribution to the policy debate dialogue, and um, implementation mission. And I think far more than any other Australian university, um, there is right across the spectrum in ANU a sense of that responsibility to contribute, not just to pure blue sky research and not just to effective you know, education of undergraduates and graduate students, but to Contribute to that sort of translational research, to contribute to the public policy debate, to produce stuff whether it's in the national security sphere, whether it's in education policy, whether it's in epidemiology, whether it's uh, climate change and other you know, science biological areas. Um, ANU really has been, you know, at the forefront of effective. Uh, communicated and effectively communicated research and advocacy and living across the lake as we do from the organs of government. It gives us far greater opportunity for interaction with government than most other, obviously, Australian universities have. Mm-hmm. And I think we do make the most of it. And I, I guess my happiest role at ANU was really sort of focusing on and seeking to reinvigorate that self-conscious Public policy role by renaming the Crawford Schools School of Public Policy by establishing this big um, uh, set piece annual conference uh, Crawford Leadership Forum, which brings together by invitation uh, key players in not only the public sector and the universities and think tank sector, but the business sector as well, to try and debate. Uh, and reach consensus on the big policy issues of the day. And I think Julie Bishop's going to very much uh, maintain that tradition. She's very passionate about those issues. And she just sort of gets it about um, where ANU is at. We've been blessed with uh, some very effective vice chancellors, um, you know, now Brian Schmidt, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist, but someone who's who's passionately committed not only to super high quality education and research, but also um, also that contribution of public policy. The, the other thing I think that's wonderful about ANU is the campus experience that it does offer. More and more of the big capital city universities are becoming commuter universities in a way that's completely foreign to my own university experience, you know, back in the 60s when, um, you know, you really, you spent the whole day and night uh, in and around the campus, engaged in endless student activities, not to mention protests and so on, um, but it was it was your life, it was it was vibrant. But these days people are coming and going, part-time jobs, economic pressures, And, um, you know, it's really not the same. But ANU is very much still a residential campus, very small university. We deliberately made the decision to keep it at 20,000 max um, rather than the 40, 50, 60,000 plus of the other mainstream Australian universities. And to really maintain that that atmosphere of community and giving youngsters a a really wonderful all-round experience. And the final thing to say about ANU I think is um, we've really taken fantastically serious the uh, national responsibility towards Indigenous Australians uh, through scholarship programs, pathway programs and all sorts of things which are designed to play to our role as a national university with outreach all the way around the country and our recruitment um, plans and processes and I think we've been having um, you know quite a lot of success with that. I was, um, you know, personally very actively involved in the physical planning of the campus, the master plan, and building programs, and God knows what else to, to put all these big aspirations into into physical form. And um, you know, I think um, now, I mean, ANU's had a hell of a year with not only the bushfires, but the um,
0: yeah.
1: but you know, flooding and hailstorms, and now the virus. I mean, all, we, all we're missing is the locusts this year. <laughs> but,
0: yeah. People can um, do. But, um,
1: the universities are suffering similarly, and I think ANU will bounce back. It's a, it's a great Australian university, and it's been a very great privilege to be associated with it.
0: Yeah, and so one of the more controversial stories, though, during your tenure as chancellor, was the decision to withdraw from negotiations with the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation, and you were not, obviously, alone as a university in doing that, and its proposal for a degree in Western Civilisation. So I was hoping you could speak a bit about that decision, um, but also whether you see a future um, for a degree in Western Civilization.
1: Look. That decision was absolutely not driven at all by any argument that Western civilization was somehow at odds with the sort of things a contemporary Australian university ought to be teaching and researching. That the canon, uh, the great books, uh, the great traditions of art, music, literature, philosophy of the West were somehow no longer relevant or core to us being the kind of country that we are. It was not that was and that's been part of the argument against it, of course. That um, you know, life has moved on, and and in a post-imperialist sort of universe, this sort of discourse is uh, is not only uh, outmoded but is positively offensive. I think that's I think that's nonsense, nonsense on stilts, as Jeremy Bentham might have said. And uh, it was no part no part of our decision making. We're always desperately keen to get um, financial support for the humanities generally, and uh, because particularly government, like the present one, has obviously got a distaste for the humanities and all their works, Um, generally. Maybe a little bit of touching faith in Western Sydney, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, But we, uh, you know, so financially we uh, we were quite happy. But the problem, the problem was the Ramsey Foundation wanted to micromanage, wanted to appoint the staff, uh, wanted to set the curriculum wanted to you know, determine every single last element of the way that particular course was run. Uh, Tony Abbott made public pronouncements which were absolutely clear cut and he was the, the chair of the governing board. And it was just an intolerable situation for any university that cherishes its freedom, its autonomy. Um, and the whole notion of academic freedom. You must not be beholden under any circumstances to outside donors, whether they're well motivated ill-motivated, or somewhere in between. And that was the, what we tried to make very, very clear to the Ramsey people. They just didn't get it. I mean, they made some concessions. Now, they've had to in terms of getting a toehold with their program of support at other universities like UQ and Wollongong. But ANU was the one that they came to first, and we're the ones that had to confront this dilemma. We, we, we would love to have had that money. $50, $60 million was mm. involved to, to run programs. And, of course, we wanted to run the programs in a particular way we wanted to make sure that there was a comparative element in the Western Civ courses so that it wasn't just, um, you know, that there wasn't an element of, of campaigning or, or it wasn't goal driven. It was a genuine attempt uh, to teach about the great uh, intellectual traditions and cultural traditions of the West, but also to put them in context, to you know see what the Confucian tradition had to say about individualism, or the Buddhist tradition, well, Hindu tradition, as well as the Western tradition, and so on. And and this was all anathema to uh, to the Ramsey people. They just wanted a straight down the line Western Sith thing, and they wanted done their way or the highway. And unfortunately, that was just not something we could accept. That mm. was not well understood by the wider community on either side. And, you know, battle lines were drawn, you know, around the idea of Western Civ itself, which was, I think, silly. I mean, Western civilization is a crucial part of our heritage, uh, upbringing, our continued thinking. And uh, it is important that we be knowledgeable about that Tradition, even though, as I constantly say, Australia's future is clearly going to be determined far more by our geography than our history, mm. and it's absolutely critical that we recognise our role as essentially a, an Asian Hemisphere country uh, rather than a, a hangover from the Euro-Atlantic past. But well, that doesn't mean we shouldn't study this stuff, be aware of it, be thoughtful about it, and that—that mm. uh, that was the terms of the debate that we had, and that's how it panned out as it did.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So you've lived an extraordinary, varied and colourful life and career, and one could say many lives and many careers, but a thread that seems to unite most of your endeavours uh, is Australia, be it your early legal concerns with Australian constitutional law and civil liberties law, your service in the Australian Parliament, and your leadership of the ANUs we've just spoken about. So could you reflect on, perhaps in more poetic terms, the idea of Australia and what it's meant to you over the years?
1: Well, what I've always loved about Australia is the egalitarian tradition more than anything else. What I've loved about Australian peacekeepers out on the ground in Somalia and other places, dealing with um, people who don't look like them or don't look like the Australians of yesteryear, anyway. Mm. But Australians have had a superb reputation for neither for neither for neither sucking up nor kicking down. Uh, but treating people exactly as they find them, I and there's something about the Australian character uh, which I find deeply attractive, and it's very much embedded in our our culture. The way we like to think about ourselves, sometimes we don't always live up to those standards, and our know, capacity for tolerance is sometimes, you know put under real pressure as it is being at the moment in the COVID context with um, some of the some of the treatment unhappily being meted out to Chinese Australians, other Asian Australians, which is completely at odds with the kind of country that I thought I, I was now living in. Yes. But hopefully we recover our, our balance because we are essentially a decent country. What Keating and Hawke and I found when we were p- plugging this idea of Australia as a good international citizen Uh, Plugging the idea, flogging the idea of Australia as uh, a country that had a role to play in the world, standing up, not just for Western values or Australian values, but for universal values. Plugging the idea that Australia as an active, energetic, creative middle power could actually change not just what happened within the country, but what happened in our wider region and beyond and change it for the better. Um, there, was a, there was a spirit of ambition and confidence about the kind of country we were, which I very, very strongly you know, related to and, and sought to articulate. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of other things we can say about the kind of country we are, but what, what I like about is uh, that we are instinctively egalitarian uh, and that we are instinctively confident and proud of the kind of things that we stand for the universal values that we stand for and have shown a real willingness very very often in the past to translate that pride and that confidence into effective not just local but international behavior so the international side of it is the one i guess that i emphasize now more than my early starting point which was constitutional law and domestic civil liberties and domestic economic issues and so on but um you know countries that are but you're proud of the countries that do have a place in the world that is really respected. And I think what I love about Australia is that, um, you know, most of the time we earn that international respect and that's something I find incredibly satisfying.
0: Yeah. Is there a part of the country in terms of the physical place and earth that and landscape that you love most? I mean, you spend a lot of time near the Brindabellas in Canberra, obviously, or is it like the the, the bay here in Melbourne? Or what's...
1: Well, I'm a bit of a sucker for the Great Ocean Road. And yeah. um, we've got a beach house down there where I've spent most of the last few months. And a little uh, little place called Urquhart's Bluff on the way in between Anglesey and Lorne, which is just a, a little piece of magic on this earth. Uh, the beach, mm. the cliffs, the waves, the rocks, the reefs. So uh that's sort of while I look there's so much else I mean yeah. I, I have seen so much of the country the kiwis <laughs> the, the Kakadoos and the um, the dane trees and the reefs and the you know the landscapes and the beaches I mean it's a, it's a wonderful country but uh, you asked me about my little bit of it uh, that I'm I'm most personally attached to that's probably it. that's yeah. where my my ashes hopefully not too soon <laughs> will uh, probably end up being washed out to sea from that little bit of landscape
0: yeah, a s- sweet corner of the planet, as uh, Bob Carr, I think, phrased it in his uh, his diaries. But um, yeah. about Sydney, not not that, that place you just mentioned. But um, final two questions is coming back uh, to the earlier sort of opening question about your early life. What do you think the young Gareth Evans travelling through Asia on his way to Oxford University on a Shell scholarship would have made of the life you went on to lead? Uh, had he been able to foresee it? And is there anything you would have done differently?
1: Well, you would have been pretty surprised that I'm still going. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 50, 55 years um, later, because I certainly had no expectations that um, I'd be maintaining anything like the level of uh, activity engagement I was able to for so long. I think um, I think young Gareth Evans would be would be pretty happy um, that, by and large, we, around the edges at least, had been able to make a bit of a difference on a lot of things that matter, whether it's. Indigenous race issues like Mabo land rights, whether it's international issues uh, like arms control, or, or uh, responsibility to protect, or whether it's just some of the other you know great civil libertarian issues of the of the day and education policy issues. I think all of those things that I've been involved in, um, you know, were things that looking forward I would have been, you know rapt to think that maybe i could have some potential influence on but of course you know life is not all roses there's an awful lot of bumps along the way and as i say in the um preface to my my memoir all of us are familiar with this phenomenon of hpt ftu the human propensity to fuck things up (laughs) And and i am absolutely no exception and um you know I've certainly screwed a number of things up uh, along the way, which I'm deeply mm. conscious of. Quite a number of them are on the public record and very visible. But, you know, the notion that you can go through your life with some unadulterated, you know, rise and rise and rise with no bumps and no falls and no plunges along the way is completely foreign to just about everyone's experience, both personal and professional and uh, certainly uh, foreign to mine, which has had many, many bumps. But at the end of the day, you look back and you say, well, you know, I haven't at least around the edges of I been able to make a little bit of a difference. And, um, you know, hopefully I have, and hopefully my, my younger self wouldn't be completely disgusted with uh, what my older <laughs> self has managed to quickly do.
0: Yeah. So finally, um, your career seems to have moved in decades, whether that's intentional or not. Um, from your first two, well, from your, two decades in the Australian Parliament, the decade at the ICG in Brussels and the decade as Chancellor of the Australian National University. So what does the next decade look like to you and what are you looking forward to doing on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, as I began by saying, what I've been most pleased with among all the horror of the lockdown is that it's enabled me to realize my true destiny now, which is to withdraw from the world, fade off into graceful retirement and let the next generation get on with all this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a word for this, which I mentioned in my memoir. I was introduced to it by former British prime minister, Jim Callan, when back in the nineties, I was trying to get him to participate in, the Keating government initiated international commission on uh, the elimination of nuclear weapons. And I said to Callaghan, I'd love you to join my commission. He said, I can't, my dear fellow. I'm a kloof. I said, what a, this is a kloof? Oh, everybody knows what kloof is. We're backwards and forwards. If you insist, if you insist, you don't know what a kloof is. A kloof, my dear fellow, is a clapped out old fart. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, um, I've now moved into, into kloof territory. I'm um, yep. three Happy to frankly admit uh, it's proved quite useful in pushing back against people trying to persuade me to do all sorts of things. I mean, I do chair a New York-based NGO on Responsibility Protect. I do chair a, a career-based NGO on um, nuclear non-proliferation disarmament. I do chair an ANU um, group center for Asian-Australian leadership, which I'm very proud to have helped initiate in the last few months. But look, at the end of the day, I'm finished. I've done my bit. It's up to the next generation. It's up to your generation to pick up these pieces and move on. You cannot go on going on. Mm. Um, There's just so many problems out there that are going to require the kind of energy which we cliffs, I'm afraid, can no longer bring to the table.
0: Well, it's a really wonderful, uh, invigorating note to end on, but I I, I definitely don't think you sound clapped out. I think you fit more into your day than probably most people do when they're, um, you know, in their 20s and 30s. So, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real honour and and privilege to speak to you.
1: My pleasure, Nick. Thanks for the offer. Thank
0: you. All right, take care. Bye.